0: Well, good morning and happy Sabbath. Um, It's been a real blessing for uh, my family and me to be here with you guys. Um, and it's been a, really, a real blessing to be able to preach um, as well. This is our last Sabbath with you. We were here last Sabbath, and this is our last Sabbath. We're leaving on Thursday. I just wanted to thank you all, thank the Arise program. Um, we have had a blast. My children have been to the pool every other day. And, um, and we have not, they have made it to the beach, but I have not made it to the beach yet but we will hopefully make it to the beach before we leave. Um, But this morning, I feel especially liberated because I don't have to use PowerPoints. (laughs) And it's great because I've had to use PowerPoints for every presentation. Um, But I hope you brought your Bibles (laughs) because I won't be using PowerPoints and I feel really just... It's like a Sabbath day of rest. I want to especially welcome those of you who are here from the, we, uh, the programs. I can see some of you, um, and I'd like to just welcome you. Thank you for being with us this morning, and I pray that you will be blessed as you worship with us. Let's pray, um, and we can get into our sermon for this morning. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the blessing and the privilege of being able to worship on the Sabbath. And Father, this morning as I speak, I pray that you will empty me of myself, that you will fill me with your spirit, and that the message that you have for us this morning will be um, a blessing, will challenge us, and will help us to grow. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. John Calvin had great plans for his life. In 1533, the academic year for the Sorbonne, or the University of Paris, kicked off in October. Uh, at the end of October, the 31st of October, it was a weekend, the 31st of October and the 1st of November, and John Calvin's extremely close friend, Nicholas Kopp, had just been appointed as rector of the Sorbonne. Uh, rectors like the vice chancellor, president of the university. The Sorbonne, at that time, the Sorbonne is still quite a prestigious university, but at that time, the Sorbonne was the most prestigious university, especially because the theological faculty of the Sorbonne was considered the preeminent place to go to if you wanted to settle a theological dispute. Okay? In fact, Martin Luther, some of Martin Luther's work, his 95 Theses, was sent to the Sorbonne for the scholars of the Sorbonne to debate over. Nicholas Kopp had been placed in an extremely... Uh, unique position. Cop was uh, well-connected. His dad was the uh, personal physician to the King of France. His brother was well-connected in government. And Nicholas had ended up here. And what nobody really knew about Nicholas was that he was a closet Protestant. Now, at that time uh, in France, uh, people who were Protestant or reformists weren't called Protestants. It wasn't until 30 years later that they were called Huguenots. At this point, you know, they were there were just a bunch of different names. But just for the sake of expediency, I'm just going to say Protestant, okay? And so Nicholas was a, a closet Protestant, and his close friend John Calvin saw that Nicholas's position opened a door for him to fulfill one of his greatest dreams. Now John Calvin had come to the University of Paris in the late 1520s and then when he came to the Sorbonne, he was an ardent uh, traditionalist, an ardent Catholic. And he was like the poster boy for Catholic apologetics when he came, extremely smart. And most uh, scholars that write about him at that time uh, describe him as really thin, really pale, Small in stature and really intense, okay. And so he was just this small, intense guy, and um, and he comes to the Sorbonne and he decides that you know he's going to revolutionize the world. Uh, you know he's going to be like the foremost Catholic scholar. And then he encounters his cousin Pierre Oliveton. Pierre had been in class with Jacques Lefebvre who was, he was the chair of theology, and Jacques Lefebvre had started sharing these radical ideas from the book of Romans. This idea that you don't need to do anything to be saved, Jesus saves you. That as a result of Jesus's power in your life, your heart changes, and all of that is is manifested in your life. And so this idea of righteousness by faith had been preached at the Sorbonne before Luther even uh, nailed his 95 Theses onto the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. And so Louis Tong comes to Calvin and he's like, you're wrong. There's only one way to be saved and that's through Jesus. And Calvin's like, no, I don't want to hear what you have to say. And then one day, Calvin was walking along the Seine River, and he comes to the place de la Grève, where generally heretics were burned. And during the 16th century, in Europe, in general, people didn't have television, they didn't have social media. And so if they wanted to be entertained, they usually went to watch people being burned. In fact in England whenever somebody was burned at Smithfield or Tyburn they would like you would have these little merchants selling food and you know it was just this thing and so there was this crowd gathered around this young guy his name was Pavan and he was being burned and Calvin was walking along and he stops uh, near Pavan and he watches this guy dying and Pavan was probably around Calvin's age and what struck Calvin was How is it possible that he is dying with so much peace? He couldn't believe it. And he knew this is a heretic. This is one of the guys that's preaching and teaching the way, um, you know, Pierre, his cousin, is. And he's like, how is it possible that he has so much peace? So Calvin goes back to his room and he studies his Bible. And over a period of time, John Calvin comes to realize through wrestling with God that Everything these crazy reformers are teaching is true, that salvation is only through Jesus, that righteousness is by faith in Jesus, and he turns around, and now, now he still has great plans for his life, but instead of spreading one thing, he's now going to capture France for Jesus. That's his, he, that's his thing. And so when he realizes that Nicholas is going to be rector of the Sorbonne, he comes to his house and he says, Nicholas, I have got a plan. And he says, you know what? Your inaugural address, you can turn it into a sermon on the Reformation. And Nicholas's first reaction is, you're nuts. Because he would be preaching not just in front of the student body, but the entire faculty of the Sorbonne. And if he went there and preached a righteousness by faith sermon, he was as good as dead. That's heresy. And then... Also, Nicholas is like, I'm not really eloquent. Are you crazy? This is a bad idea. And Calvin is like, no, it's a good idea. I'll write the sermon. You just preach it, right? And so he wears him down and he writes the sermon. Nobody knows that Calvin wrote the sermon, Well, at least Calvin doesn't think that anybody knows, right? And so he writes the sermon and then Cop preaches it. And of course, there's this uproar. He preaches this powerful sermon about righteousness by faith. There are some excerpts of it, and if you read it, it's, really, it's beautiful. It was just this Jesus-centered sermon about how you basically need Jesus to be saved. And everybody was, there was just this massive uproar. But because of his position, they couldn't immediately yank him off the pulpit and burn him, okay? And, uh, and Calvin was like in the background <laughs> watching watching people getting ready to like tear his friend apart. Thank you. And so, um, and so the sermon ends and the authorities of Paris, the Parlement of Paris, summons Nicholas Kopp to a hearing. We just want to hear wh- what happened, you know, why, why did you do this? And so Cop is now walking through the street. This is a true story. He's walking down the street, and because he's the rector of the Sorbonne, you know, he has to go in procession. He's wearing his robes, and he's processing down. Uh, he had to cross the little, uh, cross the Seine and uh, go onto the, the little island there where the Notre Dame Cathedral is, because that's where the Parliament was. So he's processing there across the bridge, and there's a crowd lined up to watch him, and somebody from the crowd breaks away, grabs him in a hug, and whispers in his ear, they're going to kill you, run. He didn't realize that the Parlement had a, uh, a special plot that once Cop got to the Parlement, they were going to shut the doors, rush him through this fake trial, and burn him. So Cop immediately veers off into an alley, and he leaves Paris. He gets to Geneva. Now, at this time, Calvin is in his, in his dorm room thinking, this is great, everything went really well, right? he preached. <laughs> yeah, he's going to the Paloma. Like, he's taking the rap for it. I'm safe. I can keep writing. I have big plans for Jesus. I want to win France. And so far, it's all going, all going great, right? What he didn't realize is that he had a tale. Somebody was spying on him. The king's lieutenant had been spying on him, and they knew that Calvin was the guy that had written the sermon. And suddenly he's sitting in his dorm room, and there's a knock on his door, and three of his friends burst in, and they're like, The king's guards are here. And he looks out his window, and sure enough, they're entering the building. So the friends strip his sheets off his bed, tie them up, and lure him out of the window. And he runs. He goes to Stra, he goes. First of all, he runs into the countryside in, in France. He takes some refuge with the Détile family, his friends. He's writing there. He's a little bit discouraged because this is not the plan. Because he had great plans. He was going to win France. He was going to win France from Paris. He had, he'd been Bible working in Paris. You know, he'd been door knocking in Paris. He'd been giving Bible studies in Paris. He, he'd gotten copped to preach this sermon. This was not part of the plan. But he was like, it's okay. It's a small detour. But it, en- it ended up that he had to leave France. He went to Strasbourg, and then he went to Geneva, and it was like, this is not part of the plan. When he got to Geneva, and uh, as the story goes, when William Farrell met him at the gates of Geneva, and he told him, we need you to help in Geneva, and he's like, I don't want to stay in Geneva. Geneva, is not- Geneva was not part of the plan. But Calvin ends up staying in Geneva, and he, well, um, Calvin did a lot of things that we were probably not the best, but one of the things that Calvin did in Geneva is he started a training school for Bible workers, and that training school trained ministers who then went across the border and started up a church planting movement in, Paris, in France, right? And by the time the French wars of religion started and they had, uh, you know, in the 1560s, they started and they were progressing, there were over 2,000 underground churches in France, mainly because of this little Bible worker training school. Today, that school is known as the University of Geneva, right, and I love that story because John Calvin had great plans for his life, but God had something better. Amen. And I love that, right? He was gonna win Paris, France for Jesus, and he was gonna stay in Paris, and Jesus is like, nope, I want you in Geneva, and you're gonna start a Bible worker training school, and where there's just one of you, I'm gonna multiply you, and I'm gonna win France in a different way. And I love that. Sometimes we have great plans for our lives, but we forget that Jesus has something better. And another story from the Bible, if you've got your Bible, go with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. There's a lot of stories in the Bible where you know, people had good plans for themselves, they had great plans for themselves, and Jesus had something better. But what I want to look at today is the story of Moses. Hebrews chapter 11. And I'm going to try to keep my sermon short. My brother tells me, that I like to hear the sound of my own voice. <laughs> Nothing like a sibling to keep you humble. But, um, but I'm gonna try to keep my sermon short because there's three parts to it, right? Okay, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. We're picking it up in verse 23. And I'm, I'm gonna make the assumption that most of us here know the story of Moses. And I wanna tell the story of Moses from the book of Hebrews because I like the progression of the story here. Hebrews chapter 11, we pick it up in verse 23, it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Okay, so Moses' parents, they, they have this baby boy born in the midst of this crisis and they see him and they have great plans for his life. Because the Hebrews were in oppression in Egypt They knew the promises that God had made, Abraham, you'll be there 400 years and then I will bring you out. And the 400 years was close to expiring and they saw this child and they were like, maybe he can be the deliverer. They had some good plans for their son. And we know the story, Um, Jochebed hides him and then Pharaoh's daughter finds him and uh, she asked Jochebed to raise him. And Jochebed raises him with a strong sense of his identity as a Hebrew, to the point that, if you pick it up in verse 24, it says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Even though he was raised in the atmosphere of, you know, the court of Egypt, and we know that, uh, you know, the, the kings of Egypt, the pharaohs of Egypt, we talked about this yesterday, this idea that a lot. All ancient civilizations believed that the king was both a religious and a political figure, right? So if you were king of Egypt, king of Babylon, king of Medo-Persia, you were not just a political figure. You were also considered the, the, the religious figurehead. You were the son of the gods. And and, and the pharaohs believed that, right? They were the son of Ra. And so for for Moses to grow up in a temple wasn't just about the political or military might of Egypt. It was also about the religious ideology of Egypt. And so he's growing up in this atmosphere where he's being indoctrinated by uh, Egyptian religious ideology. But what his mother had taught him about biblical ideology was stronger and so he comes to this point where he's like, no, I choose Jesus because Jesus offers something better, right? But Moses still had great plans. He, he, he knew the prophecies again. He understood. I'm not going to be part of, I'm not going to be called the son of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter, right? Verse 25, this is what it says. By faith, uh, verse 25, yes, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the ple- fleeting pleasures of sin. Right? It says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Okay, so not only did Moses realize that Jesus offers him something better, he understood the promises that God had given Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That it wasn't just that God was going to give them the physical Canaan. He understood that there were eternal realities at stake. That not only did God offer him um, something better in terms of his life plan, God offered him a better country. And so Moses wanted that better country, the better covenant, the better hope. Right, that's why I really like the book of Hebrews, something better, right? And so, and so here's Moses and he makes his choice, but this is where Moses goes wrong because Moses has great plans. He realizes God is calling me for some big work. I'm gonna save my people, right? If you go with me, keep your finger in Hebrews. We're gonna go back to Exodus. Exodus chapter five, Actually, actually, Exodus chapter two, my bad. Exodus chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 11. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burden. So by now, he knows who he is. He understands not just his genetic identity, not just his ethnic identity, but his spiritual identity, right? Right? And he goes out and he looks on the burdens of his people. And I, you notice verse 12. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I think this is a really interesting uh, way to translate this verse. He looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So here's Moses and he has his great plans. He's going to save his people. He's going to take them to that better country. He's going to be their leader. But in order to get started, he thinks, we need to re- lead a military insurrection against Egypt. He probably knew. He understood Egyptian military might. He, un- he, he was strategically planning. And he thinks, this is where I'm going to start it. So he looks this way and he looks that. He kills this man, buries him in the sand, and he thinks, The people are gonna rise up and follow me. This is it, right? Wrong. Moses had great plans for his life, but God had something better. And so here's Moses picking it back up in the book of Hebrews. Um, verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is inv- invisible. And so here's Moses, and he, he leaves because Pharaoh hears that he's murdered an Egyptian. The Israelites are not ready to follow him, right? We, we, we know the story. He, he goes one day and he sees these two uh, Israelites disputing and he tries to arbitrate and they're like, who made you a judge? Right, and he realizes his plans are falling apart, and so he thinks it's over. Right? Maybe I got it wrong. So he goes to the wilderness, and he's in the wilderness for forty years. Right, and he thinks it's well, I probably got it wrong. <laughs> I was I was thinking that I would that I would raise up this insurrection and I'd save my people, and uh, well, clearly I got it wrong. 40 years in the wilderness, and then what happened? Exodus chapter 3, right? Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Sorry, I'm in Genesis. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses, we pick it up in verse one. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Verse 3. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned? When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land and a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Verse 10, come and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Right? Moses had great plans for his life and then God shut them down, put them on ice, sent him to the wilderness. And now God is calling him out to go and do the very thing that he wanted to do to begin with. And he's like, oh, I think you've got the wrong person, God right? Because 40 years in the wilderness, he's led this quiet life, but God is like, no, I've got exactly the right person now. Because 40 years ago, you thought you could do it, and now you know that I can do it. And sometimes, we have great plans for our lives, and God derails those plans. He takes us on a detour because we need to learn something that's so simple and yet so profound that only Jesus can do something powerful. And when we are willing and ready to admit that, then we are ready to be used by him. And that was the thing with Moses, right? He was ready to lead a military insurrection and God said, that's not how I'm going to do it. <clears throat> We're not going to use swords, Moses. I'm just going to pot the Red Sea. Right? And there's no way that you can pot the Red Sea, Moses. You're going to be using your little Egyptian sword. That's not going to do anything. I am going to pot the Red Sea. I am going to rain bread down from heaven. I am going to speak to you face to face. I have something better. And if you don't stop and let me take over your plans, you're never going to experience the power of what it means to walk with me. And that is the reality of what God wants for each of us to experience. We have great plans, but those plans pale into nothingness in comparison with the plans that God has for us. The last time I preached a variation of this sermon, I shared my testimony as well. And I was thinking about whether I should do that or not. And I'm gonna share a part of it because it's a bit long. And um, I I like this line of thought because it's true in my own life. Um, I, I, I was born in Sri Lanka, and I was raised in a mixed ethnic and mixed religious family. Uh, so my, my mom and my grandparents, on my mom's side, are Adventists. <clears throat> and my dad is a Hindu. And to this day, my, my father is not a practicing Hindu, but I think I would classify him as agnostic. He's not really sure whether there's a God or not. And, um, and so my parents met and married in the year that Sri Lanka had its worst race riots in the history of the country. And my parents got married in April, and um, <clears throat> in July uh, there was basically uh, it was like, it was it was a variation of genocide. Okay, so uh, my <clears throat> so not only were my mom you know Adventist, my mom was Adventist, my dad's Tamil, but uh, they, my mom's Sinhalese and my dad's Tamil. So my dad's Hindu and Tamil, and my mom was uh, Christian and Sinhalese. And in Sri Lanka, in the year that I was born, I won't tell you when and date myself, but the year that I was born, they had a, what was known as Black July. And Black July was when Sinhalese people gathered in mobs, went to Tamil homes, knocked on doors, dragged Tamil people out of their homes, and killed them. And uh, <clears throat> my grandparents, my father's parents, uh, had to be evacuated to an internally displaced person's camp. Uh, because it wasn't safe. But it was really interesting. My dad knew some people in the army, and so he, uh, he called my mom the, the the day this happened, and he was like, I'm coming to get you. And uh, he, he got her out of her office. She was at work. She was pregnant with me. She was at work, and they managed to stay, uh, stay with some friends. And so I was raised in this uh, really divided uh, Just divided atmosphere, okay? So, and it was really interesting because I'm half and half, right? And in Sri Lanka, it's not just your nationality that matters. It's which ethnic group you belong to that really defines you if you're a Sri Lankan. And I'm half Sinhalese, half... So, like, I'm too Sinhalese for Tamil people because I I don't speak a word of Tamil. And I'm too Tamil for Sinhalese people because Sinhalese people are like, oh, you're Tamil because of your surname. And so I, I never felt like I belonged in either camp. You're just this floating entity. And the best thing that my parents ever did was decide that we would be raised Adventist, my brother and I. And so my identity was Christian and Seventh-day Adventist. That's where I got my identity from, right? Because there's nowhere else to find it. And Jesus became a central focus in my life. And that was what, Carried me through my turbulent teen years, Uh, you know, we, we had conflict in our home, my turbulent teen years. And when I was, from the time I was very young, I really enjoyed telling stories. I was one of those kids. My brother is five and a half years younger than me, and so till he was born, I was by myself, and I had like an entire world of people living in my head. Like, I didn't need other kids. I would just create, I had an entire world living in my head. I would talk to myself and people would come to our home and just watch me talking to myself and my mother would be like, it's okay. She's, she's just playing, <laughs> right? And so I was just, from the time I was young, that was who I was. And I was just a little dreamy, like I was that child that, I don't know whether any of you would like this, but I was that child who my mom would tell me, Suki, go to the kitchen and get a glass of water. And then between the living room and the kitchen, I'd be thinking up all these stories and dreaming. And I'd get to the kitchen and I'd be like, what did she ask me to bring? (laughs) Right? Okay, so I was always this kind of dreamer. And then when I got to high school, I discovered theater. And it was great because theater was this great medium of telling stories, right? And um, I got into secular theater, English theater in Sri Lanka. I started writing and directing and producing and doing children's theater. And I had great plans for my life because I thought, I'm going to stay in secular theater and I'm also going to do some theater for Jesus. And it's going to be like half and half, right? 50% for Jesus. I'm still like kind of doing some here, but I really like the people I'm working with. And besides, I can learn from them right? <laughs> well, you, there were things you could learn from them, just not the kind of things that you would want to learn as a Christian, right? I remember for me, the, the final straw came when I had gone on this. We'd gone on this. Um, it was basically an international theater festival for South Asia. And I was part of the entry from Sri Lanka. And we'd gone to India. The, India was, the, Indian, National, the Indian National Theater was hosting it. And it was great, you know, we had like a tour bus, and they put us in this hotel, and it was great. And um, and while I was on that trip, um, a couple of things happened. The first thing that happened was our lights guy came up to me, and he offered me, well, he didn't pull out a joint, but he was like, I've got some really good weed in my room. Do you want to come over and smoke it? And my first thought was, are you kidding? Like we." We crossed an international border and you have like drugs in your bag? This can't be safe. And a lot of the other guys were drinking and so there was this constant invitation to come out and you know, smoke with us or drink with us or go out with us. And I realized that I'd come to a place in my life where I needed to make a decision. And I got down on my knees and I prayed, I think the most honest prayer I've ever prayed in my life because I said, Jesus, I really love you and I can't let you go. But I really love theater too. And I don't know how I'm gonna let that go. And I need you to help me. That was what I prayed, because I knew I needed to make a decision. I couldn't keep going like one foot in one ditch and the other foot in the other, right? Can't live like that. And God, through a series of providences. God opened the way for my husband and myself. We were married at that. We got married very young. And we were married at that time and we came to Australia. And Australia was God's answer to prayer because it was like God was telling me, okay, I will remove you from this situation where you've got all these friends and all these people in all this community and I will give you a fresh opportunity to make a different choice. And I love that because God didn't make the choice for me. He just gave me a different set of circumstances to make a better choice. And uh, when I came to Australia, um, so I went to work on Friday and then church and Sabbath and then um, Saturday night we got on a plane and we were in Australia. So literally in the space of 48 hours, my entire life was gone right? Because uh, a sailor, my husband, he came to work for his company. They had a branch in Sri Lanka. They transferred him. So he just, you know, he was just working with people that he already knew. I was like this fish out of water. And I realized I had two choices. I had brought my resume, my letters of recommendation. I could go back to theater or I could get back on my knees and say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And so I got on my knees and I was like, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And we'd gone to, to Preston Church in two weeks, I think it was like the first week that we went to that church or the second week, I can't remember. They, were, they stood up the front and they said, we're going to have the Mark Finley evangelism and we want young people to commit six months of their life to Bible work. And I thought, oh, <laughs> Bible work, right? And I went home and I sent the Lord telling me this, this is it. And so I put in my application. I was so new, right? I'd just come to Israel. Nobody knew me. And it it was a closed program because only 16 lucky people got to get into that program. And there were a lot of people who wanted to get into that program. And they picked me. And I started Bible working. And I Bible worked for those six months with the Mark Finley program. And then I continued, I got picked up by a church and I started Bible working in campus ministry. And I didn't stop Bible working until Elise was born in 2014. And Bible work changed my life. It changed my life because just I had like so many lessons to learn, right? It's like Moses in the wilderness. That was my wilderness experience because some of it was a little barren, right? <laughs> I remember Bible working at Swinburne University for two years, we didn't have a single fruit. Every Bible study that we, we won, that we, we managed to do, it just fell away. And then there were some amazing experiences, like where we saw young people get get baptized. And like just last year, one of the, the young men that came to our Bible school table, and we gave him a book, and he came, for, uh, for, for, he came through Bible studies, and he was just ordained as a pastor. And uh, my friend Lauren and I went for his ordination, and we were like all weepy, like these old mothers, like, oh, our baby, he's like a pastor. It was amazing, right? It was such a blessing to see him. And... Um, And so it was life-changing for me. But I'm still who I am at my core, right? I'm still a storyteller at my core. I'm still a little dreamy. I'm still a little, you know, that's who I am. And I thought that maybe God had shelved that part of me, and that was over. But after Lise was born, after Karis was born, God opened doors for me to get back into writing and storytelling. He connected me with lineage. He's connected me with so many different people. I got a chance to write a book. got a chance to meet different people. And he's brought me back almost full circle. And it's so amazing because I had plans for my life. But let me tell you, Jesus' plans for me were so much better. And I just praise God for how he's brought me full circle. And I'm still doing ministry just differently and just in a way that is all for Jesus. Because when I was back in theater, I was half there and half here, and you know there's no such thing as half and half, right? And I'm all for Jesus now, and I praise God for what He did in my life. And I want to, to end. I, 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 I just want to end because I know there's a, a bunch of you here, especially you're Bible working, and you're, well, you're, you're doing a rise, and you're not sure... And I want to leave this, it's not going to be a a come come up to the altar. I just want to leave you with this challenge. You've been doing a rise and you're not sure whether you should continue and do a rise for life. Whether you should continue and Bible work for a little bit longer. And Bible work isn't for everybody. uh, Not long-term anybody. I think that every young person should Bible work at least six months in their life. Every single one. I, I, I personally believe that. It'll change your life. You should do it. But I I feel that there's some of you here, and Jesus is calling you to give him more of your life. And you are wrestling with that because you have plans. You've given Jesus your your token six months. And you're gonna you you've got plans beyond this. Arise has been great. You've got and Jesus is like, No, I want you for a little bit longer. And you are wrestling with that. I wanna talk to you and I want you to consider this. If Jesus is calling you to extend your time Bible working, don't fight it. Because it will be the best decision you ever make. It will change your life and it will prepare you for what Jesus has next. It will not be wasted. Moses' 40 years in the wilderness, he needed it to prepare him for the 40 years with the children of Israel. And the time that you spend serving God will prepare you for whatever is next. And so if you're wrestling today, you're a young person that arise, and you're, I just, this is on my heart, if Jesus is calling you to extend your time Bible working, don't say no. Give him that time, and you won't regret it. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you call us to serve you, not because you need us, but Jesus, we need you. And we need the work that you can do in our lives and we are so grateful that you are a God of such love, such compassion, such foresight, that you see what we need before we see it And you call us to walk down a path that gives us something better. Father, may we respond to the working of your spirit and may we follow you um, today and always. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.